gospel, but uh, having lived in Christchurch for, for tw uh, 12 years, I wouldn't say it's cold. Um, we haven't had a frost, I don't think, since we moved to the Gold Coast. We spent 16 years uh, living in Toowoomba, which is also a little bit colder uh, than it is here. And uh, we have lots of family in Melbourne and other parts of Victoria where it gets much, much colder than it does on the Gold Coast. But uh, we're privileged to be here. We praise God. And it's really good to be together this morning, although our number has been a little bit depleted by illness. But um, there you have it. We just pray God's blessing on those who are sick today. We thank you that, Father God, you've provided in the new covenant for our healing and you offer us divine health. And so, Lord, we, we stand on your word and we do declare that by the blood that Jesus shed, we were healed. And we apply that to everyone among us today who is ill. And we thank you for healing in Jesus' mighty name. Well, praise God, we're um, going to focus on the second part of our two-part series on what's in the new covenant. And the question I asked last week was, if someone came up to you and said, what's in this new covenant thing you Christians believe in, what would you say? And I suppose a lot of people would say, well, it's all in here, but how many people who ask a question like that are actually going to take the book and read it? I think perhaps they want at least initially a succinct summary of what the covenant contains. And I've been really, really blessed as I've prepared for last week and this week because I've had to ask myself the same question and to put it into just a few words rather than the whole of what we call the New Testament. So last week I spoke about what you might call the physical provision of the New Covenant. This week I want to spend a little bit of time talking about the spiritual provision in the New Covenant. Of course, promised in the book of Jeremiah, there are many other parts of the Word of God where reference is made to the New Covenant but you actually find it all in the book of Jeremiah, particularly in chapters 30 and 31 of that Old Testament prophet. It was provided by God in Jesus. So it's actually promised by God way back in Old Testament times, but provided by God in Jesus. And just by way of uh, review from last week. Yes, the new covenant applies to Israel and if you read uh, the book of Jeremiah you'll see reference after reference to what God is going to do in and through and for Israel. And I for one believe that God has not abandoned Israel. There are, are some theologians, there are some streams of Christianity where there is a belief that the New Testament church is actually replaced um, Israel. That's called replacement theology. We don't, at, at Ignite Life Church, we hold to the view that through what you might call a complementary hermeneutic, and I'll explain that in a minute, the new covenant, as it applies to Israel, also applies to all Gentiles, 
that is, it applies to the New Testament church. This idea of complementary hermeneutic, hermeneutic, by the way, is just the method by which you read and understand the Bible. It's a lovely big word. You can take that home and impress somebody this afternoon. It's complementary in the sense that God chooses to make the provision for Israel available to everybody. And in fact, in preparation for these last two weeks, I've been reading some quite academic uh, theological articles. And uh, one of the articles points out, and I have read this many, many years ago, but I've never been able to verify it until just in the last few days. God always made provision for people to join Israel. The provision was always there. And I mentioned last week that the literal meaning of the term sojourner is someone who's been on a path, but they've actually turned around from that path. And the word sojourner, of course, is applied to those in Israel who were not born into Israel, but they made the choice to join Israel. And that is the origin of baptism. In ancient societies, when you took out citizenship of the new um, country, you were actually baptised. You were dunked in water, and it was symbolic of the fact that you were actually repudiating your old citizenship for your new citizenship. And that, of course, is what we do today in water baptism. We make a public statement that we're giving up on the old citizenship, the citizenship of the world, and we're taking up a new citizenship, citizenship of the hosts of um, heaven in Jesus Christ. So we're actually baptised into the body of Christ. That's the first baptism. The second baptism, if you like, is baptism in water, and then there's baptism in the Holy Spirit, and we spoke about that on Pentecost Sunday, so I won't um, go into that, but if you, if you missed Pentecost Sunday and you want to follow up, always catch us on iTunes. These um, discussion points are always available on iTunes, uh, usually within a few days of Sunday Connect. So the New Covenant is made available for all of us, not just for Israel, and it will certainly be made available to Israel. In fact, it is already available to any in Israel who want to call Jesus Christ Lord and Saviour, and it is, of course, available to us. Last week, I spoke on what I called the, the physical provision of the new covenant, and it is all wrapped up in health, wealth, and joy or happiness. And it all happens in the context of being gathered in community. And, you know, I know that there are a lot of people who are very critical of the so-called prosperity uh, theology, but I believe in it. And I believe in it because I believe in a God who thinks the here and now is just as important as the ever after. You know, our eternal life starts from the moment that we accept Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour. Our eternal life starts from the moment that we receive salvation through Jesus Christ. So God is intimately interested and involved in our everyday life 
in the here and now. And the covenant provides for health, wealth and happiness all in the context of community. And one of the reasons why I'm so strongly supportive of the idea of the local church is that that is a very important community for us. And it's a community in which we can experience health, wealth and happiness. A little while ago, we spent a whole month talking about generosity. And you might recall that uh, during that series on generosity, I think it was in uh, June or May, was it, Ainsley? Was it? I think it might have been in the month of somewhere. I can't remember now. But um, we spent a whole month focusing on generosity. And one of the points I made there was that according to what the academic research on human happiness shows, being generous is one of the things that contributes to our happiness. But I want to tell you this, one of the most incredible things that was pointed out to me by a Christian economist a couple of years ago is that this thing, you can't read that I know, that's not the point, I, I, want to, I want to make a point using this chart. One of the most amazing things is that all of the research which has been done on human happiness for decades now actually supports Jeremiah 31 in terms of the physical provision of the new covenant. Now, you can't see it individually, I know, but if you wanted, if you wanted to walk up to the, to the screen, uh, you'd be able to see that I've got up here the 20th happiest countries in the world. This has only just been published a few weeks ago. Australia is number nine. We're just behind New Zealand. Um, but we're ahead of countries like Sweden, Israel, Costa Rica, Austria, the United States, and so on. Now, where we happen to be in the league table is not the really important thing. But the really important thing is that on, on the screen, right up to here, it's more than half, if you like, of the value of the happiness index for individual countries. It's made up of wealth, community, and health. What does Isaiah 31, sorry, what does Jeremiah 31 promise in terms of the new covenant? Health, wealth, happiness, all in the context of community. So this happiness index is very strongly based on wealth, or actually income per head. But if you have a look at the Hebrew and the Greek words used for wealth and riches, they can mean either the accumulated um, wealth or income that you have available to spend over a particular period of time. So what the academics have discovered is exactly what makes up the physical provision of the new covenant. I actually think that's amazing. I really do. Do you know, the Holy Spirit, we're told, in the New Testament will lead us into all truth. And I actually believe that. If we're open to the leading of the Holy Spirit, even as an academic, in my role as an academic, when I'm doing research, if I'm open to the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is going to lead me into all truth in terms of my research. It doesn't surprise me that high-paid 
academics, people a lot smarter than I am, have come up with research that supports what was already in the Word of God. So if you ask me, do I believe in the prosperity gospel? Of course I do. I'll tell you why. Because the prosperity gospel is borne out by the academic research and it's borne out by the promises that God makes in his word. The only difficulty I ever have with the prosperity gospel is that sometimes people who prosper want to cleave to their material possessions. Whereas actually we need to have everything held in an open hand so that God can use it in building his kingdom on earth. So that's all by way of recapping from, from last week. Now let me move on now. I want to talk about the spiritual provision of this new covenant. And there are three aspects to it. Those are transformation, forgiveness and uh, relationship. Uh, some theologians refer to that as consummation of relationship and we'll talk about that in a moment. So there are just these three things that are provided for in terms of the spiritual realm in the new covenant. And the more you meditate on this, really the more you wonder at the wisdom and the grace and the mercy and the love of God. I don't think any human being could ever possibly have devised a covenant such as the new covenant. Let me read the key scriptures from Jeremiah 31. <clears throat> um, it's verses 31 through to uh, 34. So Jeremiah is speaking uh, to Israel on behalf of God. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. That was the northern and the southern um, communities. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant, which they broke, though I was a husband to them, says the Lord, but this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbour and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they all shall know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. This is an amazing statement. This is a statement that was made in the context of Israel having done everything it possibly could to actually reject God and his ordinances. Um, Israel was in a state of moral and political decay. It was in a state of economic decay. There was a lot of oppression. There was a lot of poverty. And of course Israel went into captivity. God actually handed Israel over to foreigners. 
And yet here he is saying, but after those days, you know, God will never let Israel go. And, and it's not so much because um, Israel were particularly special, but you see, Israel was God's choice and God's name, God's good name actually depends on his relationship with Israel. He, in my view, he can never, ever actually reject Israel because he chose to attach his name to Israel, going all the way back to that Abrahamic covenant. So, so here he is with the people who have essentially failed, failed many, many times. And so God decides that under the new covenant, he will make provision for transformation. Jesus has done it all. I keep going back to Easter 2016 when Ainsley actually delivered the discussion point. And uh, she built it around uh, the Greek word to telestai, which is translated into English as it is finished. And what Jesus Christ achieved on the cross, I actually don't know whether we can ever fully apprehend it. But through his death on the cross, Jesus actually made it possible for us to live in relationship with God as if there had never been any transgression of the law. As if there had never been any sin in our lives. But this new covenant is so good that it goes way, way, way beyond God actually looking upon us as those who are pure, who are undefiled by sin. Through the blood of Jesus Christ, he actually offers transformation. This amazing statement that God makes about writing his law on our hearts. It's almost as if when we are saved, he sticks a USB in our ear and downloads the whole of his way of living. Um, this, this expression, writing his law on our hearts, it's repeated uh, by Ezekiel, another Old Testament prophet, and it's quoted in the book of Hebrews. It's an incredible statement. And as we're transformed, it is as if we live a godly life by accident. I've said many times, and I kind of hope that someone will write a little epitaph to me after I die that says something like, it's not a huff and puff religion. That's what I'd like on my gravestone. You know, you've heard me say this before. One of the things that separates Christianity from other religions is it is not a huff and puff religion. The only huff and puff ever occurs because we rejoice in our participation in the new covenant. We don't have to huff and puff to make anything happen. We don't have to huff and puff to get the Holy Spirit to turn up to a Sunday Connect or a Wednesday Connect. We don't have to huff and puff to talk God into healing anybody. In fact, we don't have to huff and puff 
for any reason at all. But what we have to do is to let God transform us. You know, in the book of Romans, in Romans uh, chapter, chapter 12, where it talks about being transformed by the renewing of our minds, that's actually written passively. And uh, I don't know whether any of you or how many of you are old enough to have properly learned English when you went to school. But a passive voice really means you allowing somebody to do something. So be transformed in the passive voice actually means you have to let the Holy Spirit transform you. So you can't force the Holy Spirit to do it. You have to let the Holy Spirit transform you. But this is what God provides for us as part of the new covenant. It's actually mind-blowing. There's nothing we have to do apart from accepting Jesus Christ as our Lord and Saviour and then letting that transaction take place whereby God writes his law on our hearts, whereby we become transformed people and a transformed community. And this transformation is not just personal, but it's societal as well. One of the things I'm working on at the moment is uh, finalising a, a report that I have responsibility for, for the, um, uh, the Lausanne movement, which is associated with the World Evangelical Alliance. And we're actually looking at how wealth creation feeds into transformation of both individuals and of whole communities. This is real. Sometimes we don't recognise that in Australia where we're actually pretty well off and in many senses we're the beneficiaries of the new covenant without necessarily acknowledging that. Only about 7% of Australians are actually actively engaged in their local church on a weekly basis. So by and large, Australia has kind of turned its back on the very source of, of its blessing. But much of our society, or the good things in our society, what makes our society a coherent and caring society, can be attributed to our Christian roots. And uh, one of the criticisms that a Christian apologist, apologists have of the uh, militant atheists is that when Christianity totally dies out, which is what the atheists want, they'll actually have no basis whatsoever for their ethics, which brings society together and makes society a coherent whole. But we actually have it in the new covenant. Let me move on now to talk about forgiveness. It is an amazing thing when you read through the Old Testament and you have a look at the number of times Israel stepped away from their covenant and God forgave and forgave and forgave and determined in his heart to draw Israel back. In the New Covenant, God says, I will forgive 
And he goes further to say, I will remember no more. Isn't it an incredible thing that we have a God who forgives? Now, forgiveness, let me tell you, is easy until you've really got something to forgive. You know, it's pretty easy to forgive the trivial stuff. But when someone has really hurt you, when someone has really wronged you, then forgiveness is not so easy. And some of you would have experienced the challenge of forgiveness when you've really got something to forgive. Well, God's really got something to forgive. I've said to you many times before, haven't I, that the main sin that people commit is just not acknowledging God. All right? So we are often confronted by this thought, well, how come good people don't go to heaven? How come the Bible makes it clear that just being good isn't good enough to obtain eternal life and to go to heaven? Well, see, good people who don't receive Jesus are sinners. It's as simple as that. Because it's not our deeds that fit us for heaven. It's our submission to Jesus Christ. It's our relationship with God through him that makes us fit for heaven. Jesus dealt with all our sin on the cross. See, if you actually believe what Jesus said, if you actually believe it is finished, if you actually believe that Jesus completed everything God had placed him on earth to complete, then you have to believe that you are forgiven. No matter how heinous your sin, you are forgiven. I've got a friend. He's just actually finished his Master's of Business Administration. It was on Facebook yesterday. He must have got his results on Friday. But he's a great Christian man. In fact, I'm going up to um, Gympie, I think in October sometime, to, um, to teach business people up there about God's approach to business and the role of business in the kingdom of heaven. But um, this guy actually sent me his written testimony some years ago. It runs for about 10 pages. Among other things, he was an international drug runner, him and his father. They were in crime together. They were more violent than you can imagine. They'd killed more people than you can imagine. And they'd been in more dicey situations than anyone could ever write in an action movie script. In fact, reading it, I thought, I hope he never backslides. Because he knows me now. <laughs> an amazing testimony. An amazing testimony. How one day, one day, the Holy Spirit convicted him of sin. And he accepted Christ as Lord and Saviour. And he actually, like a sojourner of old, he was on a particular path and he, he turned around. And he accepted Christ as Lord and Saviour. He was baptised and he's now one of the most 
abandoned Christians I know are abandoned to the joy of the Lord. But I'll tell you what, there was plenty in his life that we would think of as sin. But he turned around and received forgiveness. So there is no sin that God cannot uh, forgive us. And by the way, I, I kind of lost my thread a little bit. I wasn't going to let on, but I lost my thread a little bit because I did want to make a really important point, which has gone from my head again. But it will come back, I promise, because it was an important point. Let me move on and talk a little bit about relationship. <laughs> I've got notes here, but that wasn't in my notes. I want to talk a little bit about relationship, and I've, I've subtitled that Not From A Distance. Do you remember the song, God Is Watching From A Distance? It was popular probably, what, 15 years ago? It's some time ago now. Be longer than that. Be lo- oh, me? am I that old? Longer than that. 24 years ago. How old do you reckon that song is, Mark? Uh, Bette Midler. Um, yeah, Bette Midler, she, she had the big... In the 80s. 1980s. So it's 30 years old. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I don't feel that old. <laughs> but actually, theologically, that song was rubbish. Theologically, it was rubbish. Because one of the great provisions of the New Covenant is that we have a personal relationship with God through Jesus. And that, that's mediated in the earth today by the Holy Spirit, who's with us 24-7. No matter where we are, what we do. The psalmist actually said, where can I go? Where can I go? From your spirit, O God. There isn't anywhere I can go without your spirit being with me. One of the most amazing things is that in contrast to Old Testament times when our relationship with God was actually um, mediated through the feasts and the offerings and then through the priests, we actually have a direct relationship with God. Remember when Jesus died, the, the curtain that separated the so-called Holy of Holies from the rest of the temple, it was actually torn in two, right down the middle. And it symbolised our access to the Holy of Holies through Jesus Christ. That is, we can go directly to God and to pray to God. We can go directly to God and to praise Him. We can go directly to God and we can share with him our our weaknesses, our fears, because Jesus made it possible through the inauguration of the new covenant. If I could just return momentarily to the idea of forgiveness, I've subtitled that a source of power. And although this is not directly Uh, related to the scripture from Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34, I did want to make the point that for us, forgiveness is actually a source of power. One of the most empowering ideas that you can ever uh, embody 
is the idea that you have the power to forgive. Just as God forgives, you too can forgive. And in forgiveness, there is release. I mentioned earlier, when you've really got something to forgive, that's when it's hardest to forgive, but that's also when you will benefit the most from forgiveness. And we have seen generation upon generation, particularly among some ethnic groups, who have been wronged in the past, no doubt about it. They erroneously believe that compensation can make them feel better. Now, I'm not actually against some compensation. I think that makes us feel better. But actually, the key to their release is forgiveness. However, if I walk up to them and say, this is the key to your release, they won't accept that because it, it takes such a shift of thinking. I've spoken to people about it. I said, why don't you teach your people about the freedom that there is in forgiving those historical wrongs? And most, these are Christian leaders I've spoken to, say, yes, it is true, but because this hurt is so deeply ingrained, it's going to take a long, long time to get them to the point where they can forgive. And some of us have experienced that as individuals as well, where there's a long time history, but a deep, deep, scarring hurt. The truth is, forgiveness will bring release, will bring freedom, but it takes a long time to get there. What makes God different is it doesn't take him a long time to get there. He forgives instantaneously the moment we accept Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. So it's a really important thing to understand that as new covenant people, right, we are to let God transform us, let him write his law on our heart. Ezekiel talks about writing the law on the um, tablet of the heart, not on, not on the stone tablets, but on the tablet of our heart. Let him do that. And actually, as you do, you will find that you're living a holy life, a good life, more by accident than by design. That you don't have to get up in the morning and do what I call the huffing and puffing and talking yourself into doing good stuff or to living righteously or to pleasing God. It will happen automatically once you've received the transforming power of the Holy Spirit. Forgiveness. Receive forgiveness under the new covenant and that will allow you to forgive yourself. And bear in mind too, that when Jesus said it is finished, that meant that sin was dealt with once and for all and forever. And in your case, that meant he dealt with sin yesterday, today and tomorrow. You might find that hard to believe, but he's already forgiven you for the sins you don't know you're even going to commit tomorrow. That's a pretty awesome thing to realise. It's, um, it's not a liberty to live a life of sin, however, 
and I will one day in the not too distant future, I'm actually going to um, build a discussion point around that idea. And finally, but certainly not least, the new covenant provides for a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ, which is mediated here and now, right now, by the Holy Spirit. So this relationship is not a relationship from a distance as it was in old covenant times, but it is, as it were, close up, intimate, because the Holy Spirit is with us here and now. So there you have it. If someone asks you what's in the new covenant, well, pretty easy. You can refer them to Jeremiah chapter 31. Health, wealth, happiness in the context of community, and then transformation, forgiveness, and relationship, physical provision and spiritual provision promised by God in the book of Jeremiah and elsewhere and actually provided or delivered by God through Jesus Christ. Now, I reckon that's something worth celebrating.